0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zine. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly podcast. I'm Steve Paken. And I'm John Michael McGrath. The Ontario legislature is back in business. Hey, MPPs, do you have your proof of vaccination enabling you to get into the building? We'll ask about that. The government and the optometrists are eyeball deep in controversy as their dispute is into its second month. A hospital CEO tells his staff who don't want to get vaccinated to get over themselves. The NDP unveils a star candidate, but why are they running him in Kathleen Wynne's former riding? All that plus developments with the WSIB LTC and maybe a few other acronyms on this Tuesday, October twelfth, two 2012. So LGTI, you know, let's get to it. Speaking of acronyms, JMM, how you doing? I'm well, Steve, or SP, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Let's uh, start at the beginning from last week. The legislature has returned after a break during the federal election campaign. They had a speech from the throne. They had question period back in business. Bills got introduced. Announcements got made. Give us some of the flavor of the first week back.
2: Uh, You know, it was a relatively sedate week, uh, all things considered, Um, you know, that that feeling of uh, the the first week of school, right? Everybody's remembering where their desks are, that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, We already covered the throne speech in last week's episode, uh, but the the rest of the week uh, wasn't... um, terribly eventful. Uh, Two pieces of government legislation were introduced. Uh, The first was a holdover from the spring sitting that had to be reintroduced because of prorogation, Um, and it basically freezes a large sewer and water treatment project in York Region. Um, It's very sexy stuff, so I'm now going to spend the next 45 minutes talking (laughs) only about sewage. <laughs> Excellent! I'm Can't I'm wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other big piece of government legislation that was introduced was um, a big uh, red tape production bill. Uh, this is the kind of thing that the Tories have done a few times now. Uh, the Liberals uh, did it pretty frequently before them, and uh, it's it's kind of government housekeeping, I guess you would say. I mean, it's a big bill that touches a lot of different ministries, amends a bunch of different laws. Um, But for our purposes, I guess I'll just say for now that the, you know, the overall thrust is
1: uh, reducing administrative burdens for businesses and municipalities. How about this? Any issues with MPPs who were not vaccinated and who may have tried to get into the building? There wasn't, no. Um, We raised this concern in last
2: week's episode that some of the MPPs who were uh, most vocal in their opposition to vaccine mandates uh, might uh, confront legislative security over the new rules to enter the House. Uh, That doesn't seem to have happened. Uh, Rick Nichols, who was dismissed from the PC caucus over the summer uh, because of his refusal to get vaccinated, uh, showed up on Tuesday for the House to vote on his replacement as deputy speaker. That happened very quickly in the morning. Uh, He then went to the media studio, spoke to reporters after being replaced. Uh, And then he, in the afternoon, went back and sat in the House chamber, uh, took part in uh, debates, and and, uh, I believe presented a petition. (laughs) Um, And, you know, he's allowed to do that if he presents a a recent COVID test result uh, to show that
1: he uh, has tested negative. Which we presume he did in order to get inside the building, yes? Yes. Okay. Now, mind you, there was a tweet when in doubt, we always go to Twitter. There was a tweet from former conservative, now independent MPP Randy Hillier, and that did spark a bit of an uproar, didn't it? Yes, so the um, there
2: were a, a few tweets, uh, some of which got uh, deleted. Uh, perhaps MPP Hillier thought better of them, but uh, one in particular said, uh, are we afraid to admit the truth? Uh, we are in a war and nearing the point of no return. Only public influence can fix this. Um, that tweet, uh, there was another one that invoked uh tar and feathers. Uh, These were condemned by numerous MPPs uh, and the government house leader last week. Um, Hillier also got a bit of a dressing down from the Speaker this week, but not for his tweets. Um, I mentioned last week that Hillier had been cited for not wearing a mask as the legislature requires for MPPs. uh, And Hillier uh, pulled a bit of a, you know, I'm not out of order, you're out of order (laughs) with the Speaker. Uh, Hillier had alleged that his privileges as an MPP were violated because legislative security impeded and obstructed him from voting. That's the sort of the, the phrase of of his complaint uh, while he was unmasked. Um, Speaker Arnott didn't have a lot of time for that complaint, uh, dismissed Hillier's claim, and uh, also chastised him for
1: repeatedly flouting the
2: legislature's rules uh, regarding masks.
1: You remember what movie that's from? I'm not out of order, you're out of order. You're that's... all out of order. City Hall? No. I think that was from, and uh, listeners who are on top of this will let me know if we're wrong here. I think that was from, and justice for all, I think that was a big Al Pacino monologue in the middle of a courtroom that with Jack right. Gordon as the judge. Just rings a bell, but I, you know, <laughs> if I'm wrong on that folks, let me know
0: order
2: you're out of order the whole trial is out of order Uh, so that was a, a bit of what happened last week uh one thing that hasn't exactly um happened yet so to speak but was announced uh were changes to the workplace safety and insurance board uh we know those changes are coming because it was announced by the minister of labor training and skills development monty mcnaughton but we haven't seen the actual legislation yet
1: Well, okay. notwithstanding that, let's take a look at this for a moment anyway. And and let me set up the next question by mentioning just a bit of background here. Anyone in Ontario who gets hurt on the job, you are covered by the WSIB, the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board, which has a mission, a mandate of, um, well, supposedly trying to get you fixed up so that you can return to work, right? Get your health back to where it was. Or if that is not possible, then the WSIB pays you a pension for the rest of your life to make up for your lost income. And of course, there are lots of stories about how well or badly they do that job, but that is in essence what they're supposed to do. Now the government has announced that new legislation is coming soon related to the WSIB. So why don't you fill us in on what that's about? Sure.
2: Uh, I mean, to start, I guess I just need to sort of uh, explain a bit of the mechanics of the WSIB. It's it's basically like a pension fund. Um, we, the WSIB uh, collects premiums from most employers in Ontario as a form of a payroll tax, and that money is uh, supposed to go back to injured workers in the form of compensation when they're injured on the job. Um, but it also has, you know, it, it makes investments with the money it collects in order to, in the same way that a pension fund does it, it makes investments so that it's uh, the, the money it collects grows and makes it easier to uh, pay out uh, when it needs to uh, historically there was a, a, a substantial period where the WSIB actually had more liabilities than assets and the concern for government uh, this would have been under the the liberal uh, 15 years in government uh, was that if the WSIB had to pay out more in compensation than it was receiving in premiums that cost was going to end up hitting the government's bottom line at the moment wsib premiums are not like considered tax money the same way that sales tax and income taxes are Uh, so over the last decade or so there was a a bunch of changes made to the wsib's operations and now it is actually running a surplus uh so the government has a a different problem uh what do they do with the excess money that they are taking in
1: well this is obviously a better problem to have Uh, minister monty mcnaughton says they're going to give those surpluses back to businesses. How come? Well, the government calls it a way of
2: supporting business, uh, in particular, small businesses for whom WSIB premiums can be a a larger chunk of their costs. Uh, But, you know, the NDP and other critics of the WSIB are already saying, you know, this could end up being a giveaway to business. Uh, From their perspective, the only reason the WSIB is running a surplus at all is because injured workers in Ontario aren't receiving money they're owed. Uh, So, You know, if you're a relatively uh, able-bodied worker, you might never have heard uh, or thought about the WSIB before, but you are likely to hear more about it in coming months. And this is why it could end up being uh, pretty divisive at Queen's Park.
1: Good. Okay. glad you put that on our radar screens to keep watch on in the future. Let's move on to another story. If you happen to pass by Queen's Park this week, you might have seen a group of protesters out front that you don't often see, and that is optometrists. This has been a long-simmering issue, JMM. You want to lay out the issues for us on this one? Sure. Um, so let's, uh,
2: again, as I tend to, I'm going to start at the sort of 101-level uh, explanations here. Um, the way the government pays for health care in Ontario is by uh, negotiating fees for services with the bodies that represent various medical professionals. Um, so, like, the Ontario Medical Association being, like, the largest and, and uh, arguably most important one uh, these groups are not unions exactly uh, but they serve the same purpose in this context they are just bargaining collectively for their members. Um, And periodically, the government of Ontario says something like, hey, we're going to change how much we are paying you for services. Or alternatively, uh, a group like the optometrists can say, "Uh, hey, you aren't paying us enough to cover the cost of these services. It's time to increase payments. And obviously, they disagree. And uh, these fights can be very acrimonious. And that is what is happening here. Uh, The Ontario Association of Optometrists says the cost of something like an eye exam is $75. And OHIP only pays about $45, leaving optometrists to either eat the rest of those costs themselves or simply refuse to provide those services under OHIP. And uh, that is what they've done. Uh, To continue with the union analogy, this is something like a strike. Uh, They say uh, Ontario pays less for these services than other large provinces, and they want their OHIP payments increased.
1: Now, let's just remember that there are obviously a lot of people in the province of Ontario who have their eye services covered by a a workplace benefit program, and therefore this does not affect them. But for kids, for seniors who depend on OHIP to fund these services, not being able to get these services from their optometrist right now, and having to go uh, to the emergency department at a hospital, for example, where you're going to wait a very long time, this is obviously an issue for them. Now, has there been any movement from the government on this dispute? No, the short version is that the government says uh,
2: they're not going to budge on this right now. They're demanding that the optometrists agree to binding arbitration on this uh, cost dispute. You know, an arbitrator might side with the optometrists uh, or they might side with the government. Uh, One condition of arbitration could easily be that uh, the optometrists resume providing these services in the interim before a decision is made. Uh, You're right to point out that you know this has real human consequences. And I, I truly don't want to make light of this because this is healthcare and it's people's health and people's livelihoods. But I did find this a little bit funny. Um, we've had 18 months of a really um, bleak and sometimes terrifying pandemic. And I have to wonder if Health Minister Christine Elliott was almost relieved to have a totally normal, non-COVID problem to deal with. Like, this is a a totally banal problem for the Ontario Ministry of Health to deal with. This is the kind of thing that any health minister would have to deal with at least once in their government. And yeah, I kind of wonder if, if Christine Elliott is just sort of grateful to have a non-COVID
1: problem for once. <laughs> well, you're right. It is sort of a normal, old-fashioned Fee dispute, uh, the likes of which we've had in this province for decades and decades and decades, non-COVID related for once. Let's move on to the next story. We are eight months away from the next provincial election, which means the parties are frequently going to be making announcements related to that in the months ahead. And one way parties can often capture some attention for themselves is to announce that, hey, we have got a very qualified, capable, experienced person who's decided to leave whatever it was they were doing and run for us and we often call these kinds of candidates star candidates because unlike most of the hundreds of others who will run for provincial parliament you may actually have heard of these candidates well the ndp unveiled a star candidate for the 2022 election last week jmm tell us all about erwin elman when Elman was the
2: children and youth advocate in the province of Ontario. He was the only one to ever hold that position. The uh, post was created by the Liberals uh, and he was its first uh, office holder, I guess. Uh, and then after the 2018 election, uh, the position was uh, folded into the Ombudsman of Ontario's office by the Ford government. Uh, so. You know, we could argue semantics about whether the position still exists, but as an independent office of the legislature, uh, it it's no longer there. Uh, so that that's his uh, that, that's the most notable role he's had uh, before becoming uh, the NDP candidate.
1: Elman was a very passionate advocate for children in this province. Uh, he did numerous interviews on television. We had him on the agenda numerous times. Uh, he's got lots of profiles. So I think we can say this is a good get for the NDP. However, the NDP has also decided that Erwin Elman is going to run for the nomination in the riding of Don Valley West in Midtown Toronto. Now on the one hand, that's Kathleen Wynne's riding and she is not running again. So with no former sitting member there, it's an open seat, which presumably gives Elman a better shot at winning it than if Wynne were running again. However, I have checked the history of this riding and the NDP traditionally comes in third and they usually get about 10% of the vote, they have never won this riding. And it does make me wonder why the NDP would run such a prized candidate in a riding where the chances of victory, at least today, and if you look at history, seem quite slim. What do we think about this?
2: Well, uh, NDP leader Andrew Horvath says, uh, you know, effectively, all bets are off in the next election. Uh, The Liberals uh, have no safe seats that... uh, Anybody can win anywhere now. Um, and, you know, the <laughs> the results of the 2018 election really, uh, you know, I think they, they shook up the board uh, quite a bit. Um, Elman himself says that he has worked in and around Don Valley West for 40 years. He's intimately acquainted with the riding. Uh, and it's worth noting that the Liberals haven't yet named a candidate there. Um, precisely because it is such a liberal-friendly riding, uh, they seem to be holding this uh, riding open, uh, potentially to, you know, give it to a star candidate of their own uh, when that person materializes. Um, I'll also say that, you know, the NDP did much better than anyone expected in the last election, uh, both uh, generally across the province and and also they did better in Don Valley West than their sort of pre-2018 record. Uh, You know, they won 40 seats around the province, they became the official opposition. Uh, there really aren't any safe or heavily leaning NDP ridings out there that haven't already been spoken for. So if they are going to grow the caucus, uh, they you know they have to start you know poaching either liberal or Tory held uh, ridings. So the hope here is to to flip a seat that has never gone NDP.
1: Let's move on to the issue of vaccinations. Most employers are trying to walk a bit of a tightrope these days. They're trying to have a safe workplace while respecting the rights of employees who don't want to be vaccinated. But the CEO from Hamilton Health Sciences which is basically the organization that runs a bunch of hospitals in the steel city. It's also the largest employer in the area. Well, he told his healthcare workers in a town hall the other day, quote, if you are relying on some manufactured and frankly, simplistic legal argument about your individual right to work for a hospital while unvaccinated, you need to stop being so self-absorbed and start thinking about your duty to our patients, to your fellow workers and to our community. How about that? So said Rob McIsaac last week. JMM, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, I think
2: uh, we know that generally uh, you, you look at opinion polls that people are, are starting to lose their patience with people who refuse to get vaccinated. And there's no reason to think that that impatience isn't even more um isn't even sharper in the healthcare sector. So I totally understand uh, the frustration of uh, administrations of, of large hospitals. Uh, but this was um, <laughs> this was notable.
1: I'd say it was a fairly gutsy move for a hospital CEO. Usually these guys want to keep their heads down. But Rob McIsaac, who is a former uh, politician in the Hamilton-Wentworth area, um, he picked his head up. And I guess many people out there are thinking, good for you for saying what we're all thinking. Yes, Anyways, as a follow-up to that, the uh, here's another acronym. We've been all full of acronyms today, JMM, haven't we? Uh, the LTC minister, long-term care, Rod Phillips, announced the other day that all long-term care home employees who work with older residents need to get vaccinated as a condition of their employment. And we are starting to see some of the after effects of that decision. Again, a popular decision, I suspect, with most people. But some, and I wouldn't want to exaggerate this, but some long-term care home workers are quitting their jobs rather than getting vaccinated to comply with this new procedure. What's the impact of all of that?
2: As you say, it's important not to uh, overstate their numbers, uh, but the long-term care system, as we all know by now, it's it, it's fragile and it's not like we have a, a ton of surplus uh, workers uh, just uh, raring to, to jump into vacant spots. So, you know, it's a problem if uh, long-term care home workers are, are leaving and can't be replaced because, you know, we need as many vaccinated people as possible, particularly those who work with the the frail uh, elderly so they don't get COVID and, and die prematurely. Like, that is still a very real threat in Ontario. Um, and yeah, there's there's this shortage of personal support workers and, and other uh, caregivers in long-term care homes. Um, and... As much as the the government has done uh, a number of things to try and increase the supply of PSWs in the sector, uh, you know, some of those measures will take months or more to to deliver. And uh, you know, we don't want to be uh, in a position where these people quitting uh, puts us even further behind the eight ball in getting adequate care for these seniors.
1: Indeed. Let's stay with healthcare for our next item. The pandemic has, of course, highlighted a lot of things, including the fact that Ontario is experiencing a serious nursing shortage. And here is our good friend, Mr. McGrath, with some of the background <laughs> on that. Uh, so these are some national stats, but you can
2: you know assume that the same trends apply in Ontario generally. Uh, one out of five unfilled jobs in Canada is in the healthcare sector. Um, the biggest year-over-year increase in vacancies was in nursing, uh, and and again these are nationwide numbers. But there were ninety-eight thousand vacancies in total. Uh,
1: that includes uh, nursing and residential care positions. It's so interesting. We have jobs without people and people without jobs. And these are crucially important jobs, obviously, that are going unfilled. Now, someone who has been trying to shine a light on this issue at Queen's Park is Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Green Party of Ontario and the MPP for Guelph. We had a chat with him about this and some other matters as well, including the departure of his federal counterpart, Enemy Paul. So, Matthew, let's play that interview now. Mike Schreiner, it's good to see you again. How are you doing these days? I'm good. It's good to be back at Queen's Park again. I'll bet it is. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about a few issues with you, but let's start with nursing. Uh, They've been on the front lines of this pandemic, of course, and facing a lot of stress along the way. Is there something in your judgment that the current government ought to be doing on the issue of nursing that they're not right now?
0: Yeah, it's an absolute priority that we address the nursing shortage in Ontario. Steve, I can't tell you how many nurses I've met just in my own writing who are burned out, feeling overworked, underpaid, and underappreciated. Uh, I just did a Facebook Live event with Jackie Walker from um, SEIU, just talking about just the stress that so many nurses are under, how many are leaving the profession. And so I've been calling on the premier to adopt a strategy to retain and recruit new nurses. And one of the biggest points of that is to repeal Bill 124, which caps pay increases for nurses at 1%. Uh, You know, what we're talking about, uh, you know, people who've been on the front lines of this pandemic for 19 months, they deserve more than a 1% pay increase. And the fact that certain healthcare administrators and employers have wanted to pay their nurses more than a 1% increase, and they're legally not able to do that is just wrong.
2: Over the summer, Mike, the government announced $61 million in funding to train, recruit, and hire new nurses. Uh, I I take it from what you're saying here, you you don't think that's sufficient. What else would you like to see done?
0: Yeah, so I'd like to see the government commit to a 10% increase in the number of uh, nurses being recruited and, and trained over the next decade. And we also need to work with uh, fast tracking the granting of licenses for qualified internationally educated nurses. I mean I've met with nurses even who, who are even trained in the United States, for example, who are having challenges getting uh, their nursing license and so you know what we we have a number of trained nurses from around the world who live in Ontario who want to work and and we need to fast track their licenses. At the same time, John Michael, we also need to be talking about improving workplace conditions uh, for nurses. Uh, And one of the ways to do that is to make sure that our wards are properly staffed.
1: Let's uh, talk long-term care. Are you on side with the government's announcement that all long-term care workers ought to be and need to be vaccinated?
0: I'm completely on side with mandatory vaccinations for long-term care workers. I think all people working in the healthcare sector should be fully vaccinated. I mean, Steve, we had almost 10,000 people die in our long-term care homes uh, during the first and second waves of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, the the least we can do for our elders is to make sure that the people who care for them are vaccinated, and I frankly think anybody working with vulnerable populations should be vaccinated, so not just healthcare workers, but also educators, especially those educators who are working with children under 12 who, as you know, are not eligible for the vaccine.
2: Uh, We would be remiss if we had you on and didn't ask at least a little bit about the um, departure of the former federal Green Party leader, Annamie Paul. Uh, What can you tell us about what happened from your perspective?
0: Yeah, I was just deeply disappointed uh, experience and witness uh, Annamie Paul's experience with the federal Green Party. Um, Nobody won't come as a surprise to anyone. Uh, I was a strong supporter of Ms. Paul, uh, campaigned with her in the election, and I felt like she really deserved a chance to have a unified party behind her going into the election. Uh, I thought she uh, won the leaders debate and, uh, and I think, it, you know, given this experience, uh, I would recommend to the federal party that they take a look in the mirror, uh, hold themselves accountable, and really figure out how the federal party can change their organizational structure and governance structure um, uh, to address the unity issues that the party clearly faced going into the federal election. I can tell you the Ontario Green Party, I mean, you know, just to be quite frank, we're a completely separate party with a different organizational Culture and governance structure, you know, we've taken a number of concrete actions to address issues around systemic racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, including making sure we have a safe spaces policy and a member uh, code of conduct that's enforceable. Uh, we're actively recruiting equity deserving candidates. We have a fund that we've put together and so many of our members have been generous donating to to fund the campaigns of equity deserving candidates. And so I know that our party and I would say all political parties, but I'll focus on the provincial party I lead. We have more work to do, but we're committed to doing that work.
1: Yeah, Mike, I've seen dozens of leaders over the years, uh, you know, give quite meaningful and emotional resignation speeches. But I have never seen one where the leader said the last year of my life was the worst year of my life. I mean, this was things really somehow got off the rails between her and the federal party. And I'm wondering, did you try to use your good offices at any point in this drama to intercede either as a mediator or on her behalf to try to get things back on the rails? Because my goodness, what a mess it ended up.
0: Yeah, Steve, you know, I I publicly supported uh, Annemie Paul's leadership. Uh, I did a a number of media events with her, uh, campaigned with her, campaigned with uh, her and Mike Morris in Kitchener Center, which certainly was a bright spot for the federal party and a real breakthrough in Ontario. And, you know, I can tell you, when I was campaigning with enemy in her writing, um, I could see the joy that she had campaigning. And when I was campaigning with her in Kitchener Center, I just saw the joy she had uh, that particular day. And to think that she was denied that opportunity and that joy on so many other days you know, is is painful for me. Um, And again, I thought she won the leaders debate and I think with a unified party behind her could have translated that into more votes than what the party received. Uh, Mike, you
2: have mentioned your strong support for her. I have to ask, uh, does the Green Party of Ontario have a candidate in Toronto Centre and would you be at all interested in having Ms. Paul as a candidate uh, for your party in uh, the coming provincial election?
0: You know what? I'm certainly open to that, John Michael. I, I think Annemie Paul and my conversations with her needs some time to, to heal and needs some time with her family right now. But uh, certainly be open to those conversations. And, uh, and we're actively recruiting candidates uh, across the province, including in Toronto Centre.
1: Now, uh, just finally, I noticed you took pains earlier in our conversation to say that the federal and provincial green parties are separate organizations. Uh, but that is a nuance that the public um, uh, may not have taken to heart. So I guess I'm wondering, with just eight months until the next provincial election, are you worried that some of the sins of the federal party uh, may be visited on your provincial wing?
0: You know, I think the provincial party is very strong right now. We're very united. Uh, We've been setting fundraising records, um, which I think shows strong support and excitement among our membership. Uh, Certainly, you know, I'm concerned about the challenges the federal party has faced. uh, But I can tell you that, you know, we've been doing the hard work and will continue to be doing the hard work of addressing issues like systemic racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, of recruiting a diverse slate of candidates, of making sure funds are available to support those candidates and doing outreach work to ensure that diverse voices are at the table in the development of our policy and our platform and in our election strategies. And so I think if we just continue to work hard and punch above our weight at Queen's Park, I think most people say I'm an effective opposition member. Um, You know, we hope that that will mean that the public we earn their trust and ultimately earn their votes.
1: That was Mike Schreiner, leader of the green party of Ontario and the MPP for Guelph. And, um, Maybe just to peel the curtain back a bit here and to let our listeners know, John Michael and I are in different locations, obviously, as we record this. He's at his home. I'm at my home. We talk about the interviews ahead of time before we do them, and we have a good sense about where we want to take them. But that question about whether Schreiner would consider asking enemy Paul to run provincially was not one of the questions we talked about ahead of time. So, JMM, good for you for coming up with that in the moment, I presume. Did you hear anything intriguing in Mike Schreiner's answer?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I thought the answer itself was uh, intriguing. Uh, you know, Mike is a straight shooter, uh, but I, I wasn't honestly expecting him to answer that so um, uh, definitively. Uh, you know, I suppose we should follow up with Anime Paul at some point. But, uh, you know, you certainly can't blame Shriner for being interested in her potential as a candidate, uh, given his very public support for her uh, in her federal role. You know, he's, he's going to have provincial seats to fill uh, with candidates You know, all across the province. And, you know, if if somebody with her name recognition is willing,
1: maybe it's worth a shot. Well, let's state the obvious. She may have had a horrible time of it running federally, as she said, but she remains a talented, experienced, fluently bilingual woman of color, a role model for many young women and people of color and has a lot to offer public life. So at the right time, maybe not now, but at the right time, she really should think about this potential new avenue for her.
2: You know it would be a shame I think, if uh, Paul's political career uh, ended as it has. I, I think you know you and I watch a lot of people you know do this work in politics and uh, I think uh, I, I think she has more to give Canadian and, and Ontario politics.
1: Agreed. Now, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Get in there, let us know what you liked, what you didn't, and help make this podcast just a little bit better. You can also shoot us an email at tv.org. Here now, my quote of the week, and we don't normally use this space for people who aren't in politics, but then again, Erwin Elman is no ordinary candidate. As we mentioned earlier, he's the former child advocate for Ontario, whose job was eliminated by the Ford government, and he has decided to run for the NDP in what will be former Premier Kathleen Wynne's riding of Don Valley West. And here's Erwin Elwin at his kickoff announcement explaining why he's getting in.
0: It's trite to say almost these days. Everybody knows Tommy Douglas said courage, my friends.
2: It is not too late to build a better world. You might not know my mom would have said erwin it's not your responsibility to change the world but you are not exempt from trying and in that spirit i'm here standing with andrea and the ndp
1: that's erwin elman former child advocate now seeking the ndp nomination in don valley west explaining why he's running for the ndp and my quote of the week
2: comes from the Speaker of the Legislature, Ted Arnott. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that MPP Randy Hillier had raised a point of privilege over the enforcement of the House's masking rules, uh, that Arnott dismissed that point of privilege. Uh, he was also quite stern about Hillier's conduct as an MPP, and here is the last bit of his ruling from last Tuesday.
1: While well, the member for Lanark Frontenac Kingston repeatedly, knowingly, and I would submit carelessly, disregarded that order. His conduct was reprehensible and should not be repeated. If it is, further corrective measures may have to be taken as considered necessary and appropriate by the House. It is for these reasons that I find that no prima facie case of privilege has been established.
2: That's Speaker of
1: the House Ted Arnott from last Tuesday. He is the most mild-mannered MPP I have ever met in 40 years. So you know if he's ticked off, Right? You've done something <laughs> You've really, to really wrong. Level. Think on your sins. Yes, exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's our on poly podcast for this week, produced by Katie O'Connor. Welcome back, Katie, after a week on the disabled list. Edited by Matthew O'Mara, Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Halliwell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative, stay safe, Steve.